Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 36. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. For a change of pace, we're beginning today's podcast with poetry. Steve will get us going with a couple of poems from Wyoming poet, Eugene Shea. This one he called Grandpa. Tonight I look up in the midnight sky from a fresh grave in this peaceful graveyard to the moon and stars and ask myself why I lingered so long when death is not hard. When good times ended and my health ran out, long months I lay half alive and half dead, burdened to my wife whose health is in doubt. For my wife, not me, a tear should be shed. As time runs out, our belongings grow small, but family love and memories are free. I've led a full life and enjoyed it all, 50-some years with a wife that loved me. Great-grandchildren may someday recall faint memories of an old man called Grandpa. This one isn't quite as morbid. (laughs) It's called indecision. Racing this way, then racing that, never knowing where I'm at till indecision grinds me to a halt, and I must ponder what's at fault. My problem is my one-track mind. Two tasks at once just won't align. It's ever been and ever will, worse now that I am over the hill. When I'm dead and long I'm gone, some trace of me will linger on. My ghost will race this way and that. You'll never know where he'll be at. We've been reading from my Aunt Hazel's account of my grandparents' homesteading days. This excerpt comes near the end of 40 years of farming and living on their southeast Wyoming homestead. The years rolled on. Ralph and Mary saw their children grow up and get married. Some moved away and some settled in the area. Electricity finally reached the Hudson Valley. How wonderful it was to have lights, a refrigerator, and other appliances. Ralph was able to install a sink in the kitchen, build and furnish a bathroom, and get water piped to the house. About this time, in the early 1950s, Ralph's health began to fail. He tried to ignore the symptoms, thinking his congestive heart condition was only asthma or emphysema. Finally, he agreed to sell the milk cows and be freed from that responsibility. Mary thought about moving to town, thinking it would be easier for Ralph to find a job that wouldn't require so much effort in such long hours. But he dreaded the idea of living in town. What would I do, he'd say, walk up to the post office and get the mail every day, and then stand around in front of the bank and watch people walk by? Such a life seemed unbearable to him. Ralph continued to get weaker, and the spells of sickness with periods of hospitalization became more frequent. In 
In December of 1956, the time came when Mary stepped into his hospital room and saw that Ralph would not be going home again. He knew it, too. His doctor had told him his heart was worn out and he didn't have long to live. Mary leaned close and asked, Dad, is there anything I should do? He talked about the friend who'd said he'd like to buy the farm. Then he pulled her close, kissed her, and said, Mom, I guess you'll just have to do the best you can. The next day, Ralph was delirious, comatose and totally sedated, or heavily sedated. He no longer knew Mary was there. She slipped out for a few minutes with her daughter, and while she was gone, he died. He was 66 years old. The date was December 3, 1956. All eight children returned home for the funeral and the burial on a cold, foggy day in the Wheatland Cemetery. After dinner at the local Grange Hall, Mary and some of her children drove out to the farm. By this time, the fog had lifted, but it was cold, and a strong wind blew across the frozen ground. Mary did not go into the house at first. Instead, she walked up the hill toward the outlying buildings. Her children sensed she wanted to be alone. She climbed past the windmill, the granary, the chicken houses, and the pieces of farm machinery scattered about. Stopping near the barn, she looked out over the land. She could see most of the original 320 acres they'd homesteaded over 40 years ago. The farm had not reached the standard Ralph had hoped for and always believed was possible. Mary somewhat defiantly said goodbye to those acres she believed had been the cause of her husband's death. He'd worked so hard and so long, pouring out his strength day after day. She resented the dedication and determination that took him away from her, just when things were getting better for them. So many times she pleaded with him to take life easier, but it seemed he just could not slow down. Mary turned to go back down the hill to the house. This chapter of her life was finished. Ralph was gone, but her children still needed her. We're privileged to have a guest reader today, Rich Madison, a college friend of ours from many moons ago. Well, he agreed to read one of his Today's Word blog posts for us. This one is titled, Greatness and Care. Greatness and Care. Traveling to an appointment eight miles south of my city, I drove out at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday. It was just getting dark as I arrived, and I walked in with confidence that I could answer the questions my clients would ask. It all went well, and as I returned to my car, I became aware of how dark it was out there in the country. That caused me to look up, and as I had seen from the Colorado Rocky Mountains hiking there, here I also saw a sky full of stars. The psalmist, in explaining how caring God is for those who delight in Him, used an infinite to finite comparison. He said, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. 
Think about that. God has the stars all counted, and they are each appointed to a specific task. Each one fills a place in the darkened sky where there would be only emptiness without them doing their job. Searching the internet on the question of how many stars are there in the sky, I found this. Astronomers estimate that the observable universe has more than 100 billion galaxies. Our own Milky Way is home to around 300 billion stars, but it's not representative of galaxies in general. The Milky Way is considered a titan compared to abundant but dwarf galaxies, and it in itself is dwarfed by rare giant elliptical galaxies, which can be 20 times more massive. By measuring the number and luminosity of observable galaxies, astronomers put current estimates of the total stellar population at roughly 7 billion trillion. Okay, I'm not trying to be a scientist at this point. What I am understanding is why God mentioned that he numbered them and calls them by name, or gives them each a purpose. If God is so specific related to the stars, then it is easy to see that he cares for you and me in an even more specific way. He did not send his son to die for the stars, but for us. He sustains the humble and delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. The stars are important to help us understand the depths of his love for us. Consider that as you walk out of your home tonight and see them lighting up the sky. If you can, get to a place where the city lights no longer dim their view and remember these words. You are loved, much greater than the number of the stars above your head. Thanks, Rich. That makes me want to run outside and check out the night sky. We have been reading through Winds of Wyoming, and we're up to Chapter 7. However, for a little bit of review, I'm going to back up a few paragraphs. Mike charged across the room, his boots hammering the floorboards, Kate right behind him. Open up! He rattled the doorknob. At the sound of breaking glass, he spun on his heels and darted out the front door. Kate ran to the doorway, calling, He has a gun! The only response was the thump of running feet receding to silence. She locked the door and fell onto the couch, staring at Ramsey's empty glass. He contaminated her cabin before she'd spent a single night in it. She had to find Uncle Dean's hunting knife before she went to bed, or some form of protection. A loud rap sounded on the door. She sprang to her feet, clenching the lamp like a battering ram. Who is it? Chapter 7 It's Mike. Can I come in? Kate set the lamp down and hurried to, the op to open the door. He staggered in, chest heaving. The guy headed toward the highway, probably parked up there. He bent over, hands on his knees, sucking in air. I would have followed him, but I thought he might circle back. Did he hurt you? She shook her head and sank onto the couch. Her legs felt like boiled noodles. He dropped into the recliner and pointed at the bathroom. 
I'll figure out how to unlock that door before I nail a couple boards across the window. He drew another breath. It won't look all that great, but at least the hole will be covered until we replace the glass. Thanks for chasing him. How did you know he was in here? I didn't know. I was on my way to the barn to check on a mare that's about to fall and heard yelling. He reached for the telephone. I'd better call the sheriff. No, he raised an eyebrow. Whoops, maybe that was a bit strong. You can't be serious. His hand hovered above the handset. Please don't call. The sheriff would figure out how she knew Ramsey. Then Laura would fire her and she'd have to go back. Why not? He stared at her. The eyebrow still cocked. They can't find him in the dark. Finding people is what the officers are trained to do, no matter the time of day or night. She was exhausted and afraid of what she might reveal if she talked about her relationship with Ramsey. She showed Mike her raw palms. I just want to clean my wounds and go to bed. I've been driving for days. He dropped his hand to his knee. Sorry, I forgot. But still, you can't stay here. You might return. You can sleep in our guest room. No, she couldn't. Laura would ask questions she didn't care to answer. You scared him away. He won't be back tonight. I'd like to believe that, but I'll be okay, really. If he returned, she'd be ready for him. This is the first time we've had anything like this happen on the ranch. Had you ever seen him? He tilted his head and sniffed. Booze. Is that what I smell? All she could smell was brute aftershave, but she was grateful for the change of subject. He'd been drinking, she pointed to the empty glass, but he was sober enough to grab the bottle on the way out. Typical. He'd always had fast, sticky fingers. The other officers never caught him stealing their stuff. He dug a piece of paper from his jacket pocket and studied it for a moment. Receipt for work gloves. Shouldn't need it again. He felt another pocket before picking up the pen she'd placed by the phone. Okay if I use this? Sure. He flipped over the receipt and laid it on the end table. I'll give you the house and office numbers. Call any time, day or night. If I'm not around, have Mom contact me on the radio. I have a nasty bison bull who give that snake the ride of his life. She couldn't help but grin. That wasn't quite how they said things in Pennsylvania. He stood and handed her the paper. I'm sorry this happened. The touch of his fingertips against hers triggered a current she felt all the way to her toes. Kate blinked. She didn't usually like men touching her. He slipped her pen into his pocket. She didn't say anything. It was just a pen. Besides, he'd rescued her from Ramsey and saved her from a fight to the death. She would have fought with every fiber of her being. One of them would not have survived. Too bad this happened to you, Mike's forehead furrowed. Whispering Pines has always been a safe place. We've never had to worry about security. It was my fault. I didn't lock the door, thanks to Cyrus Moore. You shouldn't have to lock the door, but you better now. He rubbed his chin. I'll warn the others who live on the property to lock their doors to protect their valuables. Mom always tells the guests to lock up, so we're covered there. He sounded tired and discouraged. She could tell by the way he rubbed his leg that it hurt. She wiped blood from her swollen lip, wishing she could explain that the intruder wasn't looking for valuables. He was looking for her. 
In an essay titled Ageless Delight, David Roper offers suggestions regarding how to age well. Remember, no matter how old you are today, you'll be older tomorrow. So listen up. Ageless Delight It is against reason to be burdensome to others, showing no amusement and acting as a wet blanket. Those without a sense of fun, who never say anything ridiculous and are cantankerous with those who do, these are vicious and are called grumpy and rude. That's a quote from Thomas Aquinas. A few fortunate senior citizens go on pretty much as usual, with a few parts out of order. But for the majority of us, aging exacts its toll. Solomon's description of the process sums things up well. In old age, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. The hum of the household fades away. You are wakened now by birdsong. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. That's from the Message Bible. The odd thing, however, is that most of us don't feel old. Oh, there are days when we feel every one of our years. But in general, there's a vast disparity between the sight that confronts us in the mirror each morning and the young person that resides within. One of my favorite quotations from Frederick Buechner's Godric hangs in a place of honor over my desk and expresses my heartfelt sentiment. Deep inside this wrecked and ravished hull, there sails a young man still. I'd like to keep that positive outlook till the end. To think of all the things we used to do in the good old days and can't do anymore only makes a body feel worse. It's much better to poke fun at oneself rather than grumble and complain. Arthritic joints, hearing and memory loss, and failing eyesight are no fun, but we can survive them by managing to see them, among other things, and despite all, as desperately funny. There's something delightful about old folks who keep their sense of humor. They're a joy to be around. Like the 80-year-old gardener who, when asked how old he was, replied, I'm an octogeranium. You gotta love it. An old man with a young mind and puckish wit. The kind of person you love to be around. So much better than being a grumpa, as one little girl described her gloomy grandfather. Some years ago, I came across a printed message by Dr. W.H. Lax, a Methodist minister who worked among the poor of London in the 19th century. In this message, he gives wise counsel to those in their sunset years. The age of the body, apart from actual disease, depends on the vital organs, the heart, lungs, and the like. These are set for a certain period. They may get worn out either by fair wear and tear or much sooner by unfair wear and tear. You cannot help that. But you can control the age of your mind. You can, if you face life in the right spirit, keep the mind young almost indefinitely. And remember that the mind controls the activities and energies of all the rest of the body. It is the supreme organ. If you let the mind grow old, the body will grow old also. How are you to keep the mind young? The most important thing is to cultivate a cheerful spirit, never allowing pessimism to gain the upper hand. Make up your mind to maintain a buoyant outlook on life. When the sun shines, let it shine on you. 
Great days will come, but always think of the sunny days which must assuredly follow. Hang on to your sense of humor with both hands. The older you grow, the more you will need it. Most of the neurotic wrecks one sees and some of the mental ones are the natural result of a morbid outlook on life. And keep an open, active mind. You cannot keep the mind young if you persist in looking at the gloomy side or in closing it to new ideas, muffling it up in prejudices and stifling its enthusiasms. It is losing the thrill and zest of life that makes a man old. He doesn't lose the thrill because he is old. He becomes old because he has lost the thrill. The moment a person loses his sense of wonder at the beauty of a sunset, or the glory of heroism and self-sacrifice, or the intricate markings on a butterfly's wing, or the marvels of science, he becomes old. End quote. How can we gain and keep that perspective? Well, it is an attitude a concomitant of a special kind of joy, a joy that G.K. Chesterton called the gigantic secret of the Christian. Jesus, he said, satisfies perfectly, so that joy becomes gigantic and sadness becomes special and small. That's from Orthodoxy, Authority and the Adventurer. Faith puts its trust in God's wise providence, his compassionate, kind-hearted care, his unfailing love, his promise that someday he will take us to be with him forever. These are the truths that satisfy and sustain us, that enable us to rise joyfully each morning, whatever we have to face throughout the day. Israel's prophet, Habakkuk, put it this way, Though the cherry trees don't blossom and the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are worm-eaten and the wheat fields stunted, Though the sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns are empty, I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Savior, God. From the message. Here's a fun old story, (laughs) really old, over a hundred years. Uh, by William James Lampton, titled, How the Widow Won the Deacon. Of course, the widow Stimson never tried to win Deacon Hawkins, nor any other man, for that matter. A widow doesn't have to try to win a man. She wins without trying. Still, the widow Stimson sometimes wondered why the deacon was so blind as to not to see how her fine farm adjoining his equally fine place on the outskirts of the town, might not be brought under one management with mutual benefit to both parties at interest. Which one that management might become was a matter of future detail. The widow knew how to run a farm successfully, and a large farm is not much more difficult to run than one of half the size. She'd also had one husband, and knew something more than running a farm successfully of all of which the deacon was perfectly well aware, and still he had not been moved by the merging spirit of the age to propose consolidation. This interesting situation was up for discussion at the Wednesday afternoon meeting of the Sister Sewing Society. For my part, Sister Susan Spicer, wife of the Methodist minister, remarked as she took another tuck in a 14-year-old girl's skirt for a 10-year-old, 
For my part, I can't see why Deacon Hawkins and Kate Stimson don't see the error of their ways and depart from them. I rather guess she has, smiled Sister Potit, the grocer's better half, who had taken an afternoon off from the store in order to be present. Or is willing to, added Sister Maria Cartridge, a spinster still possessing faith, hope, and charity, notwithstanding she had been on the waiting list a long time. Really now, exclaimed little Sister Green, the doctor's wife, do you think it is the deacon who needs urging? It looks that way to me, Sister Potit did not hesitate to affirm. Well, I heard Sister Clark say that she had heard him call her Kitty one night when they were eating ice cream at the Mite Social. At the Mite Society, Sister Candish, the druggist's wife, added to the fund of reliable information on hand. Kitty, indeed, protested Sister Spicer, the idea of anybody calling Kate Stimson's Kitty. The deacon will talk that way to most any woman, but if she let him say it to her more than once, she must be getting mighty anxious, I think. Oh, Sister Candish hastened to explain. Sister Clark didn't say she had heard him say it twice. Well, I don't think she heard him say it once, Sister Spicer asserted with confidence. I don't know about that, Sister Petite argued. From all I can see and hear, I think Kate Stimson wouldn't object to most anything the deacon would say to her, knowing as she does that he ain't going to say anything he shouldn't say. And isn't saying what he should, added Sister Green with a sly snicker, which went around the room softly. But as I was saying, Sister Spicer began, when Sister Petite, whose rocker near the window commanded a view of the front gate, interrupted with a warning, Shh! Why shouldn't I say what I wanted to say when Sister Spicer began again? There she comes now, explained Sister Potite, and as I live, the deacon drove her here in his sleigh, and he's waiting while she comes in. I wonder what next. And Sister Potite, in conjunction with the entire society, gasped and held their eager breaths, awaiting the entrance of the subject of conversation. Sister Spicer went to the front door to let her in, and she was greeted with the greatest cordiality by everybody. "'We were just talking about you and wondering why you were so late coming,' cried Sister Potite. "'Now take off your things and make up for lost time. There's a pair of pants over there to be cut down to fit that poor little Snithers boy.' The excitement and curiosity of the society were almost more than one could be born, almost more than could be born, but never a sister let on that she knew the deacon was at the gate waiting.' Indeed, as far as the widow could discover, there was not the slightest indication that anybody had ever heard there was such a person as the deacon in existence. Oh, she chirruped in the liveliest humors. You will have to excuse me for today. Deacon Hawkins overtook me on the way here, and here said I had simply got to go sleigh riding with him. He's waiting out at the gate now. Is that so? exclaimed the society unanimously and rushed to the window to see if it were really true. "'Well, did you ever?' commented Sister Potite, generally. "'Hardly ever,' laughed the widow good-naturedly. "'And I don't want to lose the chance. "'You know Deacon Hawkins isn't asking somebody every day to go slaying with him. "'I told him I'd go if he would bring me around here to let you know what had become of me. "'And so he did. "'Now, good-bye, and I'll be sure to be present at the next meeting. "'I have to hurry because he'll get fidgety.' The widow ran away like a lively schoolgirl. All the sisters watched her get into the sleigh with the deacon and resumed the previous discussion with greatly increased interest. But little reckoned the widow and less reckoned the deacon. He had bought 
a new horse, and he wanted the widow's opinion of it, for the widow Stimson was a competent judge of fine horse flesh. If Deacon Hawkins had one insatiable ambition, it was to own a horse which could fling its heels in the face of the best that Squire Hopkins drove. In his early manhood, the deacon was no deacon by a great deal, but as the years gathered in behind him, he put off most of the frivolities of youth and held now only to the one of driving a fast horse. No other man in the county drove anything faster than Squire Hopkins, and him the deacon had not been able to throw the dust over. The deacon would get good ones, but somehow never could he find one that the squire didn't get a better. The squire had also in the early days beaten the deacon in the race for a certain pretty girl he dreamed about. But the girl and the squire had lived happily ever after, and the deacon, being a philosopher, might have forgotten the squire's superiority had it been manifested in this regard only. But in horses, too, that graveled the deacon. How much did you give for him, was the widow's first query, as they had reached a stretch of road that was good going, and the deacon had led him out for a length or two. Well, what do you suppose? You're a judge. More than I would give, I'll bet a cookie. Not if he was as anxious as I am to show Hopkins that he can't drive by everything on the pike. I thought you loved a good horse because he was a good horse, said the widow, rather disapprovingly. I do, but I could love him a good deal harder if he would stay in front of Hopkins best. Does he know you've got this one? Yes, and he's been blowing round town that he's waiting to pick me up on the road some day and make my $500 look like a pewter quarter. So you gave $500 for him, did you? laughed the widow. Is it too much? Um, er, hesitated the widow, glancing along the graceful lines of the powerful trotter. I suppose not, if you can beat the squire. Right, you are, crowed the deacon, and I'll show him a thing or two in getting over the ground, he added with swelling pride. Well, I hope he won't be out looking for you today with me in your sleigh, said the widow almost apprehensively, because you know, deacon, I've always wanted you to beat Squire Hopkins. The deacon looked at her sharply. There was a softness in her tones that appealed to him, even if she had not expressed such agreeable sentiments. Just what the deacon might have said or done after the impulse had been set going must remain unknown, for at the crucial moment a sound of militant bells, bells of defiance, jangled up behind them, disturbing their personal absorption, and they looked around simultaneously. Behind the bells was the squire in his sleigh, drawn by his fastest stepper, and he was alone, as the deacon was not. The widow weighed 160 pounds, net, which is weighting a horse in a race rather more than the law allows. But the deacon never thought of that, forgetting everything except his cherished ambition. He braced himself for the contest, took a twist hold on the lines, sent a sharp, quick call to his horse, and led him out for all that was in him. The squire followed suit and the deacon. The road was wide and the snow was worn down smooth. The track couldn't have been in better condition. The Hopkins colors were not five rods behind the Hopkins colors as they got away. For half a mile it was nip and tuck, the deacon encouraging his horse and the widow encouraging the deacon, and then the squire began creeping up. The deacon's horse was a good one, but he was not accustomed to hauling freight in a race. A half mile of it was as much as he could stand, and he weakened under the strain. Not handicapped, the squire's horse forged ahead, and as his nose pushed up to the dashboard of the deacon's sleigh, the good man groaned in agonized disappointment and bitterness of spirit. The widow was mad all over that Squire Hopkins should take such a mean advantage of his rival. Why didn't he wait till another time when the deacon was alone, as he was? 
She had had her way. She never would speak to the Squire Hopkins again, nor to his wife either. But her resentment was not helping the deacon's horse to win. Slowly the squire pulled closer to the front. The deacon's horse, realizing what it meant to his master and to him, spurted bravely, but struggle as gamely as he might. The odds were too many for him, and he dropped to the rear. The squire shouted in triumph as he drew past the deacon and the dejected Hopkins shriveled into a heap on the seat. With only his hands sufficiently alive to hold the lines, he had been beaten again, humiliated before a woman, and at that too, with the best horse that he could hope to put against the ever-conquering squire. Here sank his fondest hopes. Here ended his ambition. From this time on, he would drive a mule or an automobile. The fruit of his desire had turned to ashes in his mouth. But no, what of the widow? She realized, if the deacon did not, that she, not the squire's horse, had beaten the deacon's, and she was ready to make what atonement she could. As the squire passed ahead of the deacon, she was stirred by a noble resolve. A deep bed of drifted snow lay close by the side of the road, not far in front. It was soft and safe, and she smiled as she looked at it as though waiting for her. Without a hint of her purpose or a sign to disturb the deacon in his final throes, she rose as the sleigh ran near its edge, and with a spring which had many a time sent her lightly from the ground to the bare back of a horse in the meadow, she cleared the robes and lit plump in the drift. The deacon's horse knew before the deacon did that something had happened in his favor and was quick to respond. With his first jump of relief, the deacon suddenly revived. His hopes came faster again, his blood retingled. He gathered himself and, cracking his lines, he shot forward, and three minutes later he had passed the squire as though he were hitched to a fence. For a quarter of a mile the squire made heroic efforts to recover his vanished prestige, but efforts, but the effort was useless. And finally concluding that he was practically left standing, he veered off from the main road down a farm lane to find some spot in which to hide the humiliation of his defeat. The deacon, still going at a clipping rate, had one eye over his shoulder as wary drivers always have on such occasions, and when he saw the squire was off the track, he slowed down and jogged along with the apparent intention of continuing indefinitely. Presently, an idea struck him, and he looked around for the widow. She was not where he had last seen her. Where was she? In the enthusiasm of victory, he had forgotten her. He was so dejected at the moment she had leaped that he did not realize what she had done, and two minutes later he was so elated that, shame on him, he did not care. With her, all was lost. Without her, all was won, and the deacon's greatest ambition was to win. But now, with victory perched on his horse collar, success his at last, he thought of the widow, and he did care. He cared so much that he almost threw his horse off his feet by the abrupt turn he gave him, and back down the pike he flew as if a legion of squires were after him. He did not know what injury she might have sustained. She might have been seriously hurt, if not actually killed, and why not? Simply to make it possible for him to win. The deacon shivered as he thought of it and urged his horse to greater speed. The squire down the lane saw him whizzing along and accepted it profanely as an exhibition for his especial benefit. The deacon now had forgotten the squire as he had only so shortly before forgotten the widow. Two hundred yards from the drift into which she had jumped, there was a turn in the road where some trees shut off the sight, and the deacon's anxiety increased momentarily until he reached this point. From here he could see ahead, and down there, in the middle of the road, stood the widow waving her shawl as a banner of triumph, though she could only guess at results. 
The deacon came on in a rush and pulled up alongside her in a condition of nervousness he didn't think possible to him. Hooray! Hooray! shouted the widow, tossing her shawl into the air. You beat him! I know you did! Didn't you? I saw you pulling ahead at the turn yonder. Where is he in his old plug? Oh, bother! Take him and his horse in the race and everything. Are you hurt? gasped the deacon, jumping out, but mindful to keep the lines in his hand. Are you hurt? he repeated, anxiously, though she looked anything but a hurt woman. If I am, she chirped cheerily, I'm not hurt half as bad as I would have been if the squire had beaten you, deacon. Now don't you worry about me. Let's hurry back to town so the squire won't get another chance, with no place for me to jump. And the deacon, well, well, with the lines in the crook of his elbow, the deacon held out his arms to the widow and... The sisters at the next meeting of the Sewing Society were unanimously of the opinion that any woman who would risk her life like that for her husband was mighty anxious. Let's wrap this up. have a few poems, again, by Eugene Shea. He has some good stuff. It's called Poet by Night. I've heard it said, but I can't say by who. Beds were built to accommodate two. But things do change, though change is slow. Beds become smaller the older you grow. And sooner or later that day arrives when twin beds enter our nuptial lives in ways that's good or not too bad, if unlimited visiting privileges are had. She's early to bed and up with the dawn. He burns midnight oil and well beyond. Though twin beds need help, they really won't do. What we need to have is twin bedrooms, too. And if we live to be 110, we'll probably need twin houses by then. But the day we die, if we ever do, twin graves won't seem to be anything new. Here's a short one. Old timer stays regular. Prune juice before eight with breakfast is great. Milk of magnesia before bed. So as of this date, I'm doing just great. But next week, I could be dead. Magnetized. Those unused refrigerator magnets collect in our cupboard drawers no more. When hyperactive grandson comes to stay, we paste him on the refrigerator door. And that is it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.